1: The study of both American and world history is an integral part of every child's education. And it's not just out of curiosity. It's not just to learn fun facts. As you probably recall from your own history teacher telling you, it's so we learn from their mistakes, so we don't repeat them, so there is no World War III, so there is not another Holocaust or Hitler. We can't blame them back then. They didn't know any better, but we do. Although our influence in such things is limited when it comes to a national and especially a global scale. We cannot call in a SEAL team to assassinate a would-be dictator. We just don't have that level of influence. We can vote. We can protest. But ultimately, the decisions are made by the powers that be. However, we have immense, great influence on our own lives, on a personal level. And just as the mistakes of the past help us understand and avoid wars and evil regimes, so too the mistakes of the past help us understand and avoid sin and evil temptations. Today we begin a section of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, That serves as a history lesson for that very purpose, to show us the mistakes of God's people Israel in the past for the purpose of warning us, God's people today, the church. We start this morning with verses 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in which Paul shows us that our spiritual and physical privilege as Christians are the same as ancient Israel. And all of this comes as a warning. Just as they had great privilege and advantage, they still fell into idolatry and rejection of their Lord. So, too, we can fall into sin and in small ways reject our Lord and our decisions that we make. It is a history lesson so that we can learn from the past. We can learn from our forefathers. We can learn from our type the Israelites. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10 and read along as I read verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, it is all of chapter 10 that provides for us this example. We start with the privileges they had in the first four verses. Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. The advantages that we have today are parallel with Israel. And this morning, I want to give you that very truth, five parallel advantages between Christians and Israel, five parallel advantages or privileges between Christians and Israel. And again, these parallels serve as a backdrop for the warning that just like Israel, we too can fall into the sins that destroyed them. For despite these privileges, they still chose idolatry and disobedience Over the worship of the one true God. Five parallel advantages between Christians and Israel. The first parallel advantage is spiritual progeny. Spiritual progeny. Look at the beginning of verse one again. He writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers, and we'll stop there. He begins with this connective word for. It shows us he's still on the same topic, the same topic of preferring others and thereby giving up your Christian liberty out of love, love for the brethren, because of your love for God. More specifically, as we saw last week, this involves great discipline, such that an athlete competing for the gold would exert. And this is what he's connecting to. Be disciplined, my friends. Be disciplined. And he says, I don't want you to be unaware. I want you to remember that our fathers, this is important because what we will see is an idolatry of the Israelites that led to their destruction. In the same way, we are warned about our tendency to prefer what we want over what is best for others or what blesses the church, what honors God. Without self-control, we may end up being disqualified as the Israelites were, as Paul fears, as we saw last week. Now, Paul refers to the ancient Jews as our fathers, as they are indeed our spiritual forefathers. Simply another way of saying they are our spiritual ancestors. They came before us. We are in their lineage. Not by blood, not for most of us. We are not ethnically Jews, but by spiritual character, and God given privilege. If you go all the way back to Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham that promises him that the people of God will come forth from his seed. Now, this starts with ethnic Israel, the Israelites, the Jews. And though for the most part we are not Jews, Abraham becomes our forefather in our unity in Christ. The entirety of Romans chapter 4 speaks of Abraham as the forefather of believing Jews and Gentiles, that is, non Jews, because of his faith that was credited to him as righteousness. Romans 4 also points out that all of this happened before he was circumcised. Circumcision being the distinguishing marker of the Jews or those of the law. And those who are not Jews, the uncircumcision, the Gentiles. And so it is important in God's plan that all of these promises came before he was even circumcised. A clue, if you will, that he will be the forerunner not just of those who are racially Jews, but also those who are spiritual Israel Christians, the church. It's not only the same faith that we share with Abraham, but also that he was declared righteous prior to a circumcision, which makes him our forefather as well. As such, his physical seed, the Israelites became our forefathers. They were in that lineage of Abraham, and the specific group that Paul is addressing here in our passage this morning refers to, and also desires us to learn from, Or that specific group of Israelites that were delivered from enslavement under Pharaoh, the Egyptian Pharaoh, and led through the wilderness for 40 years. And as we will see next week, and as you well know, that those people did not make it to the promised land. They were all killed by God because of their idolatry. This is the warning. The fact that we are their spiritual progeny provides us great benefit. We are God's chosen people, grafted in, yes, but still God's chosen people. We are those whom God saves. We are those whom God grants immense advantage and privilege akin to the ancient Israelites. We are saved. We are His. We are the children of God. We are the spiritual progeny of the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness. That first point really sets up the four following parallel advantages. Let me give you a second, which is steadfast presence. Steadfast presence. Still in verse 1, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers, what? Were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. At the end of Exodus chapter 13, when Israel fled Egypt, you remember that the Lord led them by going before them in a pillar of cloud during the day, which became a pillar of fire at night so it could be seen. The cloud directed them. They followed it. It told them where to go. Later on in the midst of the wilderness, they did they would camp, they would set up their tents. This was a lot of people by most estimations, over 2 million people. If you look at the sentences in right before and after the majority of the wandering speaks of men, and so you have to add wives, women, and children. So around 2.4 million is the going estimate that was sustained through the wilderness. And you would see they would pitch their tents. This was no small feat. They all had their tents rolled up They would carry them with them, and they would pitch them, and then the cloud would stay there. And they wouldn't know how long they would stay in that specific place. But when the cloud started moving, up come the tent pegs, roll up the tents, and then they start moving. They just followed the cloud during the day and the fire at night. This is what he's talking about. Then beginning of chapter 14 in Exodus, we read that the Lord... Once again hardened Pharaoh's heart one last time, and he decided to chase after the Israelites, not just with a bunch of servants, but with his army, with his horses and chariots. Eventually, Israel follows the cloud to the shores of the Red Sea. They were stuck. nowhere to go. Even then, they said, "What are we? Is this why you let us out, Moses? Is this why the Lord let us out so we could be pinned? large body of water, uncrossable in front of us, those who want to kill us and enslave us again behind us, this is it, to die here at the shores of the sea. But as we know, God saves them. Passing through the sea, here in verse 1 of First Corinthians 10 is a reference to the Israelites crossing the Red Sea on dry land that you can read about in Exodus 14. One of the most famous miracles in the Scriptures. And that was God's plan all along. It wasn't a mistake. Oh, whoops, wrong turn. Here we are at a body of water. What do I do now? This was the plan to show Israel and the world not only his power, but his commitment and love to his chosen people. That's so important as we look at advantages that Israel and we as a church have. His commitment and love to his chosen people. He parts the waters and all the Israelites passed through the sea on dry land. Both the cloud and the miracle at the Red Sea were signs of God's presence with them. That's what Paul is referring to here. Both the cloud and the miracle at the Red Sea were signs of God's presence with them, his steadfast presence. While Paul is saying, uh, what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, is that this is a privilege that they have and that we have as well. Though not as dramatic as for the Israelites and the cloud and the sea, God is equally present with us all the time, with you as an individual. And what Paul is talking about here back in 1 Corinthians 10 is a continuity, a continuity of God's faithfulness. The reality is that it's not because of us, it's not because we deserve it. It is because of the faithful character of God. It's simply who He is. You've experienced this in people. And hey, do you know this guy? He did the, He's so nice, and you say, "Yeah, he just always does stuff like that. That's just who he is." This is God. It's who He is. To be faithful to his people, to love His people. No matter how you may feel at certain times and difficult trials, while you're sitting in the hospital room or kneeling in front of a toilet, throwing up, whatever it may be. Sometimes we may not feel like He's with us, but He's with you. He's always with you. It is a privilege we have as His people. Now back in verse 1, Paul emphasizes that the community as a whole received this, just as a community of the church as a whole receives this. He says, all were under the cloud and passed through the sea. Not just Moses and Aaron, all of them, all of them, obedient or disobedient, they were all being led, obedient or disobedient, even the ones who cried out at the shores of the Red Sea, oh, is this it? We're going to die, Moses? You idiot, what have you done? Even those were led by the cloud and passed through the sea. God was with them. In the same way, all Christians, all believers have the Lord with them. He is with you. No matter your feelings, no matter your situation, no matter your circumstances, no matter how many hours you have left to live, He is with you. I could go on. No matter the bad news from the doctor, no matter the bad news from mom, God is with you. No matter the physical pain, the emotional pain, God is with you. He is with you. It's a very simple concept. We're familiar with it. We know it. We sometimes forget it because we let our feelings get the best of us. God is with you. And my question this morning for you is what are you going to do with that information? Okay, yeah, thank you, God. I know, but, you know, i got to muscle through everything anyways. What are you going to do with that information? How does that change your life? How does that change how you listen? Right now, compared to how you are listening 30 seconds ago. How does that change when you walk into work or Zoom into work tomorrow morning? How does that change when you go in for chemotherapy on Wednesday? God is with you. What are you going to do with that information? Back when I took the classroom portion of driver's ed, I was in a small room. I don't know how they do it now. I didn't go to a high school that provided it. We had to pay. We went to this place. I remember is was uh, on El Camino. It was right next door uh, to where Chevys used to be on El Camino in Redwood City, little room that they had rented, very small, just enough room for the, the students, a TV, where they could show us the, those horrific, bloody movies. Remember that red asphalt? I think there's a red asphalt, too. Try to scare you and then room for the teacher. That was it. It was very small. Now, as I would imagine it is today, there was a certain number of classroom hours required by the state that you have to sit there and listen and be taught by this individual. So there was a time clock. And not just a clock, a time clock, where we would have these timesheets, and we would literally need to punch in so that they could make sure we were there for the required amount of time. It's like what you would see at a factory, right? People lining up, clock in, clock out. There's a literal stamp that goes in. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around one of these, but those clocks, it's usually a big square, right? A little ledge where you put the time card in. They're really loud. Not just when you clock in or clock out. Every time that a minute ticks by, that the minute hand goes, it is accompanied by a loud thump. Because it's not like our clocks where it just needs to tick. It also is moving, I'm assuming, that physical stamp inside, so it thunks every single minute. And it's heavy and it's locked to obviously prevent people tampering with it to put in more hours than they actually worked. And I remember sitting down and one of the very first things... That the teacher said, because I was it was right there, right? It was, I was sitting right by it, and the furthest person was like where that speaker is. They're right by it. We all heard it. And one of the first things the teacher said is the clock is really loud, but don't worry. You'll get used to it, and pretty soon you won't even hear it. It was loud. I mean, you see these in giant factories, noisy factories. We were in a quiet, small classroom. Sure enough, within an hour of our, I don't forgot how many hours it was supposed to be, 40 hours or something like that, our brain started to tune it out. It was so regular and consistent, we didn't hear that every minute thunking anymore. You've experienced this with other things. Your brain just adjusts, tunes it out. You know, we can often view God like that. He's always there. His presence is so consistent that on the one hand, you can acknowledge this fact, like that time clock or even like a small child who knows his parent is in the room still doubts and fears and disobeys because the constant presence of that parent is no different than the constant presence of a roof over their head. It's just there. You get used to it. You take it for granted. You don't think about it. It doesn't change your life. And if you're wondering, well, does this ever happen to me? Yes, if you've ever sinned. You know theologically and biblically that God is there watching you, and yet you choose to sin. You choose to raise your voice. You choose to look. You choose to... Log in, you choose to lie, whatever. And yet you know God is there. Sometimes we're so aware of God's presence that we're asking for forgiveness as we're choosing to sin, knowing that we're about to do it anyway. We just get used to it like that time clock. Tune him out. Or on the other hand, you can recognize his constant presence and worship him for it. Respond through reverent obedience and godly fear. What's your choice? We are actually, in some ways, at a major disadvantage compared to the Israelites. They had a literal, this was not figurative, they had a literal cloud, a literal pillar of fire at night. Some of them probably had to close their tents tighter because the light from the fire was keeping them up. He was constantly there in a physical form. They watched as 60,000 cubic miles of water was parted so they could walk through. And yet they still turned away from God. The reason I say we're at a disadvantage is because he doesn't do that for the most part for us. We don't get tempted to sin and say, Ooh, forgot about that huge pillar of fire. But we know he's there. And so we must discipline ourselves as we saw last week. We must excel still more. We must be cognizant constantly Not only of his presence, but of his character and who he is. His steadfast presence is a blessing. But here, we must be warned from the life and example of the Israelites. Let me give you a third parallel advantage between Christians and Israel salvific protector. Salvific protector. Into verse 2, it says, and all, speaking of all the Israelites in the wilderness, were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What does this mean? It's a little bit confusing. Let me explain. God's presence for his people also meant that he was protecting them. We see this throughout his provision in the wilderness. You definitely see this in the crossing of the sea. And the key here in this verse is Israel was, quote, baptized into Moses. Today, baptism is a ceremony that shows our identification with Christ. For the Israelites, Paul is talking about their identification with Moses as the Lord's appointed leader over them. That's all that means. And just as baptism in the church age represents a solidarity between the believer and the Lord, so there was a solidarity between the people of Israel and Moses only because he was God's representative and chosen person. He was akin to Christ for them. Our baptism is in a body of water that identifies us with Christ and His Lordship over us. Their baptism baptism was in following the cloud and passing through the sea that identified them with Moses and his leadership over them. Because you saw that even back in the Red Sea, remember? He he tells Moses, I'm going to do this, but he still has Moses use his staff to part the sea. Was it Moses who parted the sea? No, it was God. But he still had Moses do that as his representative, as their leader. And the word baptized highlights the redemptive aspect of all this. They were saved from death. They were saved from Israel. They were pulled out. You understand this is a foreshadowing of salvation for the believer. The object of the baptism, the Israelites, highlights their participation in this redemption. And in both their baptism into Moses and our baptism into Christ, there is an affirmation of deliverance and redemption. They were delivered from Egypt, we are delivered from sin and its consequences. They from Egypt and slavery, us from sin and damnation. And just as Israel was the precursor for us, so Moses was the precursor of Christ here's the point. God is so generous, so generous with His grace that all of His people participate in the privileges and blessings of being His called and chosen, all of us. Yet despite this otherworldly supernatural level of divine generosity not all in the church will apply God's gifts or exercise the self-discipline that we spoke of last week. And so, like the Israelites, they will not safely pass through the wilderness. They will be disqualified. Again, not losing salvation, but losing reward. Loss of influence for the gospel in this Place. Our journey is not a literal wilderness, but a life of temptation, but also a life of service opportunities. We have all thought or referred to this life as a wilderness at times, have we not? It is hard, it is difficult. And whether you have today, at this moment, been physically baptized or not, as a Christian, you have been baptized into the Lord at the moment of salvation. And as such, you have been given his protection. You have been given his guidance. You have been blessed immeasurably with opportunities and abilities. He is your salvific protector. And with all of those blessings, with all of those opportunities, with all of those abilities, and quite practically speaking, with all of your fingers, With your tongue, with your eyes, with your ears, with your feet, with your physical bodies? Will you choose the way of the Israelites and squander them to your own doom and the hurt of the church and unbelievers around you? Or will you apply these truths and live a life of holiness in honor of the Lord, your Lord? Advantage number four. Supernatural provision. Supernatural provision. Verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4. And all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. During their travels in the desert, God miraculously provided His people with food and water. Even those of you who have had opportunity to travel in or through or go camping in a desert, You know that perhaps more than any of your other road trips, you make sure you have enough food and water and gas and the car is tuned up because you don't want to get stuck there and walk 20 miles to the nearest gas station if you run out of gas, where one car passes by every few hours that might help you. No cell phone coverage. So we understand, not to their degree, how miraculous it would be for 40 years to be provided food and water in the middle of a desert. There is the infamous manna from heaven that we can read about in Exodus 16. Exodus 17 is the first of two times that God provides water from a rock This is the time that Moses strikes the rock because he was supposed to. The second time he struck it but was not supposed to. What he's talking about here was physical food and water that sustained their physical bodies. This is not some sort of uh, analogy here. They ate and drank. They lived for 40 years. This also refers to all physical provision their clothing was, did not wear out, things like that. Here Paul calls it spiritual food and drink simply to indicate the spiritual and miraculous way in which it was provided. The source was supernatural. The food was food. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 16. And we read about this. We're familiar with these passages but i want you to listen and follow along in your bibles as i read this with an ear toward the miraculous the amazing the supernatural exodus 16:4 through 5 then the lord said to moses behold i will bring one who has traveled many miles who is a baker no. I will rain bread from heaven for you. I will rain bread from heaven. I mean if if we didn't tend toward the reverent, we would be laughing at this. Could you imagine? Let me continue. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Remember, just one day's worth. Don't get greedy. That I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. And so he say, okay, this is miraculous. So, but it's just going to be like rain. It's just constantly rain. No, no, no. Verse 5, on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will, twi- it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Why? Because on the seventh day, it wasn't going to rain down bread more miraculous. He can turn on the faucet of miracles and he can turn it off at his will. Jump down to verse 13. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp. They're in the middle of nowhere. And wind blew in meat for them. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. Okay, that makes sense. But Verse 14 When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. So just enough for your family. The sons of Israel did so. And get this. Some gathered much and some little. But when they measured it, it was an omer. They didn't all have little scales. They didn't have perfect measurements there. They were just gathering. They were eyeballing. And yet every time it was exactly an omer per person. He who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. Miracle number three. Moses said to them, let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses, and some left part of it until morning. And it bred worms and became foul, and Moses was angry with them. Miracle number four. They gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Now on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, this is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning as Moses had ordered, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it, miracle, I don't know, I'm lost count. It's not just the shelf life of the manna is 24 hours. God was doing this. Verse 25, Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. And it came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. God is not just a big picture guy who does these big miracles, he's in the details. I mean, even the Red Sea, you ever thought about it? I mean, we're not told in the Scriptures, but even from a scientific point of view, I would imagine the fish never having seen a clear end to water, but only the shores of rock and sand. Why were the Israelites not crushed by sea life coming through the water and falling on them? Because God held them back. God worked in every one of those fish's instinctive brains, don't go through the water. Every little thing. There was no leak. Nothing. The waters came back and flooded when he wanted to, to destroy the Egyptian armies. The manna, rained down, shelf life. Doesn't come on the seventh day. All of these details. Clearly, this was miraculous, not only in the way that it was provided, but that each had exactly what they needed to be full. Did not come on the Sabbath. So many more. This explains why the psalmist in Psalm 78.25 refers to the manna as the bread of angels. Psalm 78.25. We don't even need to go into the, the spring of fresh water from a rock clearly something of the Lord. God sustained His people physically through spiritual means throughout their lives. In the same way, God sustains us physically through spiritual means throughout our lives. Though the reality of things like Trader Joe's and Domino's delivery may make us less cognizant of God's clear provision then bread miraculously appearing on the ground, you know that God is still involved. God is still our sustainer. Though we buy our food through physical means, we work, we get a paycheck, we cash that check, we go to the store, we order delivery, it is still supernatural because God provides. Think about this last year even in the midst of a pandemic. A pandemic, we call it. This is bad, I agree. But I think we've lost sight of the reality of what the word pandemic means. As believers, many of us have followed the path of the world around us and that we have gained weight rather than starved. When I hear the word pandemic, at least a year ago I would have, I would think millions of people starving to death. And many of us in this room are putting our freshman year in college to shame by how much weight we've gained in the past year. And what I'm saying is that despite this, which is most likely being the, most, the biggest global problem you will ever experience in your lifetime, God has provided for you, not to mention your clothes, your internet, your electricity, <laughs> your ability to to complain about the pandemic on social media from a device no bigger than your hand in your pocket anywhere. God has provided. Much has changed over the last year, but despite how much has changed regarding things like safety regulations, vaccines, and workplace norms, And to be clear, I don't mean that those things I've just listed are the change, but those things themselves have changed. Different tiers, different regulations, different understandings. Pump out the vaccine, pause the vaccine, it's dangerous. Restart the vaccine, stop it again, restart it again. All these changes as people are discovering different things. All these changes just in the last year. And in this last year, and forevermore, there are two unalterable constants that will always remain true, have remained true throughout this pandemic, and whenever we look back and whenever we still exist, will still remain true. First, nobody, and I mean nobody, will ever understand why we all hoarded toilet paper. Number two, God provides. God sustains. God sustains His people. God even sustains the world. Physical provision, though not as dramatic as for the Israelites, but through spiritual means. And once again, despite this clear, miraculous provision, Israel grumbled. Israel complained. Israel turned from God. We need to be warned. We need to be careful. If a people in the middle of nowhere were provided for for 40 years with absolutely no other reasonable explanations for the food and water aside from God, could still grumble and turn, how much more of a temptation for us who have the reasonable explanations for our food and water, such as our jobs, our bank accounts, our friends providing, how much more can we grumble and turn, and how much more have we? They grumbled and complained because they had to eat the same thing every day for 40 years. We grumble and complain because a DoorDash driver is five minutes late. Have you ever wondered why in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 of Matthew, Jesus teaches His disciple the Lord's Prayer? The Lord's Prayer. We all know it. And in it, in verse 11, He instructs us to pray, Give us this day our daily bread to pray, God, give us this day our daily bread, which speaks, again, not just of food, but of all our physical needs. This day, daily bread, indicating that this is to be our prayer every single day, no matter how many weeks' worth of food is in your pantry, no matter how many outfits are in your closet. Yet moments later, in the same sermon, in the same breath, In the same chapter, Jesus tells us not to worry about what we will wear or what we will eat. Why? It's because that line in the Lord's Prayer, the model and foundation for all prayer, is to be an affirmation in our minds and our hearts of where all our provision comes from. God is our provider. We don't pray for our daily bread like we pray for God to heal a relative of cancer, which we end with, if it's your will, Lord, because we know it may not happen. Please, Lord. We pray for our daily bread, knowing he will provide it in recognition of his his character in recognition of his supernatural provision today and every day. As sinners, we never get what we want. We always get what we need. The problem comes when, when we confuse the two. God is our provider. And that leads us to our fifth and final parallel advantage between Christians and Israel. We've seen that we are their spiritual progeny. We've seen the steadfast presence, our salvific protector, his supernatural provision, and fifthly, sustaining provider. Sustaining provider. End of verse 4, "...for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ." There was a Jewish, a rabbinic tradition that's not in Scripture that said that after Moses struck the rock at Rephidim in Exodus 17 and the water poured forth, this was at the beginning of their wandering in the wilderness, that that physical rock constantly pouring forth fresh water then followed them throughout their journeys over 40 years constantly providing water. Now as strange as that seems you have to understand that throughout that wandering 40 years we have two instances in scriptures of God miraculously providing water surely they drank water the other 40 years on a daily basis right i i forgot what the what the statistics were but They say how long an average human being can last without food is a matter of days. Without water, it's a matter of hours. He provided for them. But how? We We aren't told. This was the rabbinic answer to this issue, that the physical rock just stayed with the group. To answer this question, I want you to remember back in Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Athens. He sees all the various statues and altars to false gods, idols. In fact, he sees so many that he is moved to preach the gospel, and we are given this amazing evangelistic sermon, the Sermon at the Areopagus or Mars Hill. Same title, different language. The launching pad for this sermon is a reference to one of those idols that he saw that had the inscription to an unknown God. He is using the statue of a pagan idol to start this great evangelistic sermon. And here's what's important about that. He is not affirming that that idol is real, that they should pray to that statue. He is saying, you know what? There is some truth to what is on that statue, but let me clarify for you who the true God is that is unknown to you. And then ditches the idol. In 1 Corinthians, he is not affirming that the rabbinic teaching of a physical rock following them through the desert is real. He's saying, yes, there's some truth to this tradition But it wasn't a physical rock, and like in Acts 17, then ditches the tradition and says the rock was a person. It wasn't a literal rock. It was figurative, and that rock was Christ. What is the role of the second person of the Trinity in the Old Testament? Well, here's one. Jesus Christ was with them the whole time. And in fact, and this is so cool, the word rock that Paul uses here in First 1 Corinthians 10.4 does not refer to a boulder or a large stone like the one that Jesus or that Moses struck, like the one the rabbi said followed Israel. It is a different word that refers to a massive cliff. Think Half Dome in Yosemite. Think God is our rock. In other words, it wasn't a physical rock that followed them. It was a spiritual rock. It was Jesus Christ. He was their sustaining provider. The word rock is a familiar title to us for God. It's used in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 multiple times. Psalm 1914 is where we get that song, that line from the song, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What Paul is emphasizing is God's faithfulness to his people that does not change regardless of who those people happen to be. It underscores his unchanging nature despite the unreliable and erratic nature of his people regardless of who those people are. And specifically, it stresses the continuity between Israel and the church who, despite God's provision, are prone to idolatry of some sort. He sustains you. He provides for you. Are you aware of that? Do you see that? When you thank God for your meal, is that just rote? Is that just something you do? Like setting the table. We got to wash our hands, we got to set the table, we got the food on the table, we got to pray, and then we eat. Just something you do to teach your kids? Or is it a recognition that God is your provider? We stop there, but if you look on in the passage, you see doom and destruction and literally in verse 5, bodies strewn across the wilderness. It's a warning, not just of their failings, but of the consequences. Sometimes you read that and you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This can't be right. God killed them all? There were two? Two? Joshua and Caleb entered. Moses didn't even enter. Aaron didn't even enter. He killed them all? Yes. That's the warning. Still God's chosen people, and yet because of their idolatry, because of their grumbling, because of their disobedience, He didn't let any of them into the promised land. We'll unpack this more in coming weeks. Again, this is not talking about loss of salvation, but the warning is clear. Five parallel advantages between Christians and Israel. Spiritual progeny, steadfast presence, salvific protector, supernatural provision, and sustaining provider. My friends, today, right now, You as a Christian have the same privileges of those Israelites. So much so that like them, we have gotten perhaps a little too comfortable. Comfortable with our cushy lives. Comfortable with how we approach a holy God. Comfortable with disregarding our comfort and then complaining that we want more and we don't have enough. And yet you have more than you need, way more than you need, way, way more than you deserve. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I have more than I need, more than, more than I, I deserve. We, we just have one kid. We should not be bummed that we can't get pregnant again. That one kid is more than you need and you deserve. That spouse is more than you need and you deserve. You need God. You need to be with Him. So those three breaths of air that sustained your life that you took in the last five seconds is more than you need and definitely more than you deserve. I was approached by a friend who was for a short time missionary with me when I was a missionary in Albania. He's now a missionary in Bulgaria. And he asked me if he, I can uh, log in late Thursday night, Friday morning for his uh, Bulgarian businessmen's Bible study because they're going through some stuff. They like to complain, and they said, "I, I want someone. We're going to take a break from our, our our thing on James, and maybe have a guest speaker to talk on how to biblically handle trials." Very humbled by this, he asked his wife, "Who who would be good to talk on trials?" And his wife immediately said, "Roger." With full honesty, I believe the only reason she didn't say Jenny is because she can't lead a men's Bible study. And it's one of those things like when people say, how do you preach? I I don't know. I'm not good at that. If you wanted me to teach a a class on preaching, I, I don't know. I don't know how I do what I do. It's just the Lord. And it was the same thing with enduring trials. And so I started scrambling through and like what would I say because I just I just is obviously he doesn't want me to just say well just be godly right just try to do your best and I thought of one thing that has sustained my wife and I through all of it and I've said this before I I am no I I in no way think that we've had it worse I know many people who have it worse than us kids who who are much sicker than our kid Kids who have died younger than our sick child. People who have lost babies after they've gone full term. But regardless, what I've just shared with you is one of the main ways that we are able to have, by God's grace, the focus that we have is that we recognize we don't deserve it. (laughs) When have I ever been promised a healthy kid? Any kid's. I don't deserve to go through, experience a full term pregnancy. We didn't even deserve those twenty two weeks. We didn't deserve that first ultrasound. We didn't deserve day one of saying we're pregnant again. We don't deserve it. Are we sad? Of course. Does that affect us? Of course. But when we start saying, yes, God, you're present. Yes, God, you provide. Yes, God, you save. But you know what? If I could only get this, I just need this, I just want more. You've missed the whole point. You think you deserve what you don't deserve. Because what you deserve, my friends, what I deserve, is hell. Period. Not hell and happiness. Not hell and family. Not hell and a mortgage. Hell. Everything else is grace. Everything else is grace. We have to learn from the Israelites. They saw a physical manifestation of God, they saw miracles. They were the miracle. They walked through it. He didn't just stop Pharaoh and there was a dry path there and say, I'm going to part these seas just for Pharaoh to see. He parted them to deliver Israel so they could walk through it. They were part of the miracle and yet they still said, we want more. Better food, more food. Grumble, grumble, grumble. We got to be careful, friends. Learn From Israel. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a super, from a spiritual rock, which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our rock is Christ. And as we go day to day, we often find in our own minds our rock to be our jobs or paycheck or vaccines or refusal to take the vaccine, whatever it may be. Guard us, Lord. Change us. Slay those wrong thoughts in our minds. Help us to appreciate you for who you are, to be content with what you have provided. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you have given us good desires. Thank you that you have given us things to enjoy. But may we have the right perspective even when we seek anything from the newest cell phone to a family. May we come to you humbly. Recognizing that you do love us. You want to give us good things and things for our good. But may we be humble. May we recognize who it is that provides. May we ask you with reverence and not a fist. May we learn from the mistakes of Israel. Lord, how gracious of you to allow us to learn from a people that broke your heart. May we not do the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand as we close.